From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democratic Governor Jared Polis wants a second term as Coloradans struggle with high prices. I don't think any governor candidate can come and say, I'm going to fix global inflation. That's not within the authority of a state or governor. What we can do is say, we're going to do everything we can to cut costs and reduce fees and reduce taxes. It's not just prices that have soared. So has crime. Polis outlines his criminal justice plans if he's reelected. It's not always a law enforcement officer that is the best response on the scene. It's often somebody with that mental health training and support to bring that situation under control, freeing up our law enforcement resources to go after criminals and fight crime and keep us safer. Plus, Polis is raring to fight sprawl. Also, why he boasted about his combustion engine at a recent debate. And would he support a federal law to protect abortion? Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Jared Polis wants to be Colorado's governor for another four years. The Democrat and former congressman is running against Republican Heidi Ganahl. We heard from her yesterday. Today, Polis on inflation, housing, fentanyl, and climate. We sat down late last week. Governor, thank you for being with us. Ryan, it's a pleasure to be here. In 1980, Ronald Reagan famously asked Americans in a debate with Jimmy Carter, are you better off than you were four years ago? I think economically, mentally, socially, a lot of Coloradans might say no, or at least hesitate to answer yes. I'd like you to talk to a Coloradan who says, I'm not better off. I want to change. Oh, look, I think that we've had a global pandemic. We've had the three largest wildfires in the history of our state. Right now, uh, there's global inflation, worse in, in parts of Europe and the rest of the world, but still very significant here in the United States. I think what people are looking to is proven leadership that understands the difficulties and pain people are going through and has a plan to make life better. And that's what we've done. We got Colorado through the pandemic, ninth lowest death rate, one of the shortest economic shutdowns in the entire nation, less days out of school than most other states. Uh, We upped our wildfire response. We're ready for what lies ahead. We now have our uh, we purchased our first state Firehawk helicopter. We've leased exclusive capacity so we don't have to compete with fires in other states. And we've really centered our focus on saving people money, not just words, but actions. Every Coloradan and every small business is going to be paying less on their property taxes, whether it's eliminating social security taxes, state social security taxes, making it a dollar to start a business to encourage entrepreneurship. Uh, sending everybody out a $750 rebate, you know, close to a year ahead of schedule, and 95 more things that we got done, including free preschool and kindergarten for every family. So I think what people understand is, you know, sadly, Colorado exceptionalism doesn't set us apart from actions that affect the entire world, but we're forging a very good path forward here in Colorado. When it comes to the $750, there was bipartisan support for moving that up and recalibrating what people got in terms of checks. But that was a function of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, of which Democrats have often been very critical. I am curious if you win a second term, if there is a marquee proposal uh, similar to what you had four years ago. For instance, you set a goal of universal kindergarten. 
that's now a reality. For a second term, there's a lot of work ahead. Uh, I think when you look at the big costs that people have, healthcare, the other big cost people have is housing. Uh, simply put, it costs too much to live close to where jobs are in our state. Uh, we have so many people I hear from where, you know, they're 26-year-olds living in their basement and will ever never be able to afford that down payment to get out. People that are forced to live further and further from work, putting more jobs on, more cars on the road, more pollution, more traffic for all of us. So the big challenge that we hope to do is essentially create more opportunities for housing that people can actually afford to buy. So think 300s and 400s as opposed to 600s and 700s, close to where jobs are, aligning our water needs as a state, our energy needs as a state, and our infrastructure needs as our state with those housing needs to drive affordable housing. Number two, we're going to make Colorado one of the 10 safest states in the nation. We're currently 21st in violent crime. That's not good enough for the residents of Colorado. We're not a middle-of-the-pack state. Uh, If I'm reelected governor, we're going to have a thoughtful, bipartisan solution that includes better support for behavioral health. We've already begun to do that, making sure we look at better uh, support for law enforcement. We've already stepped up from the state to support local law enforcement and a comprehensive approach dealing with all the factors that impact crime to help actually prevent crimes before they occur and make Colorado one of the safest states in the nation. And we're going to get it done. Well, a lot to unpack there. Why don't we start with crime? Uh, We can get to housing in just a bit because we've heard from a lot of Coloradans that that concerns them. I think that there are any number of people who would say the Polis administration has not delivered when it comes to public safety. This has become a more dangerous state. Well, I think anybody who's, you know, serious about public safety, uh, and I have support from many sheriffs and and DAs, has really come together around our plan to make Colorado one of the safest states. First of all, uh, how do we put this plan together? Uh, We really consulted with and worked with professionals in the field, you know, whether it's law enforcement, police chiefs, sheriffs, DAs. I've held a number of meetings at the governor's mansion at the Capitol out in the field, visited co-response models in Summit County, which we modeled some of our state support for co-response models after. So we've put together a data-driven plan. And I think the people of Colorado- Give me, give me an example we, from the plan. Sure. Uh, Something well, you want to achieve. So, so again, we, the first step, we already got through the legislature, which is a $160 million investment, more and better policing support for retention, recruitment bonuses. One of the things really affecting our entire economy uh, is hard to fill jobs, right? It's, it, there's more jobs posted than there are applicants. Obviously, that's a better problem to have than, than not having enough jobs, but it does make it hard in mission-critical sectors, law enforcement, teaching. Uh, we hear this from many companies as well. So retention bonuses, signing bonuses for law enforcement, helping to support training of new law enforcement trained personnel, and then co-response models. This means that when you have a behavioral health crisis, when you have somebody who's having a psychotic event or a breakdown, it's not always a law enforcement officer that is the best response on the scene. It's often somebody with that mental health training and support to bring that situation under control, freeing up our law enforcement resources to go after criminals and fight crime and keep us safer. When it comes to recruiting law enforcement, there are some who say that uh, a reform bill that Democrats passed Uh, with some bipartisan support, made it more difficult to be an officer, that you could be sued individually, for instance, for your work on the job, Uh, that it has dissuaded people from joining law enforcement. Is the legislature's own actions and your own signature part of the issue in attracting law enforcement? Uh, I'd say that, you know, when I hear from uh, law enforcement agencies across the state, 
Um, there's a lot of factors that, that go into the challenges. And again, these challenges are not unique to law enforcement, healthcare, education. We had to do a program for lifeguards this summer to get our public pools open because there simply weren't enough lifeguards in our pools. So we're seeing this across many sectors. I, I think the financial incentives, retention helps the fact that our men and women in blue know that the governor of the state has their back, uh, the additional steps we're taking to keep our law officers safer in the field. Um, so, I mean, I think it all comes together, but uh, it's a challenging time to get the folks we need for a lot of positions and making sure all the help more Colorado step up and serve is going to be a key part of keeping our community safer. So let me get very clear on the record. You do not believe the police reform bill has resulted in it being more difficult to attract law enforcement? Well, I obviously, look, I'm a data-driven guy. If there's any aspect of that bill that our law enforcement professionals are saying they want to change or improve, I'm always open to working with the legislature on those improvements. On the subject of crime, I'd like to talk about drugs and particularly fentanyl. Earlier in your administration, the legislature passed legislation that it's been phrased as decriminalized, but reduced penalties for certain amounts of fentanyl. In this past session, they undid that and strengthened those penalties. Do you think that that original bill, 2019, contributed to the fentanyl crisis that we have seen? Well, it's important that we have some intellectual honesty on this. Uh, Fentanyl has been illegal, is illegal. And as long as I'm governor, will be illegal in Colorado. So what we're talking about here is what penalties you have, right, for possession. I hope there's consensus around stronger penalties for drug dealers. We added new charges that never existed before for pill presses, for instance, that are mixing fentanyl in with other drugs. The people that we want to go after from a criminal perspective, lock up for a long time, are the people selling, dealing, facilitating this poison entering our communities. When you talk about an addict, it's complicated, Ryan. And you might know people who struggle with addiction. I, I certainly do. There's a criminal element, and I'm fine with that. Sometimes it takes that fear of prison or uh, the ability to prosecute to be able to get cooperation uh, from somebody who might be a user so we can actually indict and get the drug dealer. But at the same time, we want to extend compassion and help. We want to make sure that there's a route for treatment, a route for recovering your sobriety. And there were aspects of the legislation passed in this last session that did all of that. But back to the question of 2019 and reducing penalties on fentanyl. Did that make Colorado less safe? Well, look, I'm always a data-driven person. And so um, if you can show me the policies that make people safer, whether it's more criminalization of fentanyl or less criminalization of fentanyl, uh, I would say I am going to follow the data around making Colorado safer and ending this availability of this poison in our state. Uh, And I I think think that absolutely stronger criminal penalties have a role. And I was proud to sign the bipartisan bill to add additional penalties that never existed before. I'm sick and tired of the bodies piling up in our state. We need to make sure that people know how dangerous it is is, and avoid even taking that first dose of something that might be contaminated with fentanyl. Just one last time here. You talk about bodies piling up. So Colorado reduced penalties around fentanyl and bodies started piling up. Do you draw a connection? Ryan, you're, you're implying causality. Uh, be clear, fentanyl deaths have gone up in every state. There are many states that have f- felony treatment of fentanyl. There are many states that have misdemeanor treatment of fentanyl. It's illegal in every state. It's illegal in Colorado, always has been. But regardless of what the criminal penalty is, fentanyl deaths have gone up in the United States. It's a border security issue. It's a, a an issue of a criminal issue of going after dealers and people that are mixing fentanyl in with other drugs because many of the victims are unsuspecting. Uh, and of course, it's a drug treatment and rehabilitation issue as well. I I hear you talking about crime, and in a way it sounds like 
Democrats are the ones to fix it. But I think that your critics will say Democrats are the ones that contributed to yeah, well, it. Well, first of all, it's what, just what wrong. What do you yeah. say? I mean, look, crime's gone up in Republican states like Texas and Florida. It's gone up in Colorado. Unfortunately, criminals don't care whether Republicans or Democrats are in charge. Uh, what matters in reducing crime are the solutions you have to solve it. Now, the best way to prevent crime is to prevent it from occurring before it occurs. After it's occurred, of course, you want to capture those responsible, hold them accountable, and make sure they're unable to prevent a criminal act again. But you also want to make sure that you have better behavioral health support, youth uh, programming to make sure people don't resort to a life of crime, drug addiction recovery treatment to prevent people to be driven to crime from drug addiction. So you really need a comprehensive effort if you really want to have an impact on reducing crime. I'd like to talk about housing, which you've mentioned, the idea of people living closer to where their jobs are. It sounds like that's going to be a priority if you win a second term. What is the power you have and how will you use it? So it ties into a lot, uh, Ryan, of how we can enjoy life even more in our great state of Colorado, uh, maintain a strong, positive business environment because uh, we need to have people that can afford to power our economy and live. People want to be able to support themselves and have kids. It ties into our water future. Uh, At the end of the day, we simply can't afford as a state to continue to move out in a more exurban sprawl from a water perspective, from a traffic perspective, from a livability perspective. So you want to reduce sprawl in Colorado. What's your instrument? What's your tool? Well, for we've that? already begun that work. We've taken a first tentative steps by aligning. When we when we received the American Rescue Act money, this was an unprecedented opportunity for our state. For over four billion dollars, we did a bipartisan statewide listening tour. We said, "What are those big challenges in Colorado?" And in every corner of our state, from Fort Morgan to Denver to Grand Junction to Pueblo, housing, housing, housing came up. Different dimensions, different characteristics, but that was an issue. That's why we began to really make that a major source of investment. And we tied that investment as a carrot to local zoning reforms, meaning uh, cities have to want to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem to be able to benefit from the increased funding to support housing. And we need to go further down that road as a state. What does that look like? So, so just yeah. to put this in different words, the idea was, hey, local communities, the state will give you some of these dollars if you build housing, affordable housing near where people work, or perhaps near transit, for instance. So it's been a carrot to this point. What's the stick? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that we're willing to look at all the options of of working with communities across the state. Name one. Uh, I don't know what they are. Well, I mean, it's it's about land use. It's about water. Uh, We have to tie our water policy to our land use policy. Um, When you look at what's happening with the Colorado River Compact, when you look at the climate change that's occurring with the hotter, drier climate, we can't simply allow these things to exist in silos. So as we work to be thoughtful about what Colorado will look like in the face of a changing climate from a water perspective, a fire perspective, but also an affordability perspective and a traffic perspective, uh, we really need to make sure that the state is able to be front and center in addressing items of statewide concern, which I've identified here as housing simply costs too much. Would you say at any point, hey, community, you can't build that there? Well, look, local communities decide what gets built where, but there's a lot of levers the state have, both on the carrot and the stick side, about making sure that we're doing this in a thoughtful, interjurisdictional manner. Because the truth is, 
as you know, Ryan, I'm a strong supporter of local control, uh, but where the decisions of one community affect the quality of life in a neighboring community or community across town, that's where we really need to look at this as an interjurisdictional and statewide manner. And housing fits squarely into that category where the decisions of one community affect the quality of life for the entire metropolitan region of Colorado Springs, of Denver, of Grand Junction, of Pueblo, uh, or of Eastern Colorado. The numbers are remarkable when it comes to housing prices. We looked back four years ago when you were running for the first time. In Pueblo, the median price of a house is up 70%, 40 in Denver. This year, the city of Fort Collins ranks seventh in the country in housing price increases. Uh, the market has slowed a bit recently given interest rates, but Coloradans are still being priced out of homes. Th- that this occurred in the four years you have held office. I go back to the question of has your administration come up short on this? Well, look, I, I can't help it if we've made Colorado an even more amazing place to live and the secret's out. And the truth is we have with preschool and kindergarten, with uh, saving people money. We have people from you know across the country and across the world who say, look, Governor Polis' success story in Colorado is something we want to be a part of. And that creates its own challenges like housing. Now, look, we have an opportunity to address this. Um, the average price in Colorado, you can look, I think it's about 600000 for a home. Obviously, it's going to depend a lot on the markets. Uh, we are still considerably lower than California. They're now um, in many markets in their cities over a million dollars for the price of a home. We have a few markets that are that high too, but over the whole as a state, it's around 600000 If we fail to act, if we fail to take the kind of steps that I'm talking about in terms of creating more affordable housing opportunities, 300s and 400,000s near where jobs are, Colorado will become like California. So I think we need the courage of our convictions and we need to act boldly and we need to act now and sooner or else we'll be acting after the fact. Now, finally, states like California and Oregon are looking at housing and doing something about it. And you see some of the measures they're doing around accessory dwelling units and density around transit corridors. And Colorado can do that now under our leadership, or we can simply step aside, avoid conflict, wait 10 years and do it after homes cost a million dollars right here in Colorado. It seemed that you were hinting at the notion of tying population and development to water. Could you expound yeah. on your view there? I mean, you know, I think the plainest way to put this is water might be the final arbiter of how many people can live in a place based on how much is available. That's a good way of looking at it. Again, another alternative on a road we don't want to go down for our state, and this is, again, a difference between my opponent and I, I oppose buy and dry policies that dry up agricultural lands to support our growing suburbs. I've come out against the project to buy out the water rights of San Luis Valley, uh, ending generations, centuries of farming and ranching to support more homes in Douglas County. We have uh, she, to have- she too actually has said that she opposes that diversion. That's good. But with me, it's not a question of having to get me to do it. That's a matter of principle. I, I, I don't support pitting one part of Colorado against another. It's not some painstaking path I agonize over. It's a very simple discussion, and that's where I'll always be. Uh, but it also means that we need to make sure we can develop in a water-smart way. And you look at some of the steps the city of Aurora is taking around water efficiency and developments. Uh, we're aligning that with more water efficiency for state-owned facilities. But it's also about how we build and have housing for the future in a more water-sustainable way. What about storage? You know, these giant storage projects get reviewed and held up for years. What potential is there there? Of course. uh, And I think that 
we, we have moved forward and we, we support um, additional storage projects in Colorado. Each of them is expensive. Each of them is difficult. You can't store your way out of a hotter, drier climate. Uh, that being said, of course, we support additional water infrastructure projects. But at the same time, we really need to look, make sure that we can grow our community in a sustainable way that reduces our usage without sacrificing our quality of life. Can you name one that you support, water storage project? Uh, well, they're locally driven. So, I mean, you know, wh- which ones have state financial support? We do. We have funded the state water plan. We plan to continue funding the state water plan. Each and every one of the storage projects is locally driven by the local basins and the communities. And the hardest challenge is often getting the entire community on board to support it. Often they affect several communities. And of course, the state will step up to help uh, where we can with the resources that we have to help make sure that we can deliver on more water storage. If you see the local buy-in. But it doesn't sound like you're prepared to name a project that has your backing. Well, there's many underway across their state. Again, the, the challenge is always getting them through and getting them done. Uh, the state can be a funding partner. We should be a funding partner. But these are not originated by the state, nor should they be. They're always originated by local communities and water basins across the state. Economists at CU Boulder just released their business confidence index, and pessimism abounds among corporate leaders. They cite inflation, interest rates, the supply chain, among other factors for their negative perceptions. What would you tell these pessimistic business leaders? Well, to be clear, they're not pessimistic about Colorado. This is about the, inter- the global business climate. Um, I think if we ask them, they're probably more optimistic about our state. But we are subject to, you know, the, the economy, right? Colorado is part of the United States. The United States is part of the world. I can tell you on behalf of the state of Colorado, we're prepared for what lies ahead. Under my leadership, we have record reserve levels for the state government. We're, we would be entering any potential recession uh, with the highest reserve levels in both absolute numbers and as a percentage that Colorado's ever had as a rainy day fund. Uh, And we're well positioned for what lies ahead. We have a diverse economy. We're working to recruit more companies here. We've identified, we we welcomed a quantum computing company to Colorado yesterday, Adam Computing today, uh, healthcare companies. So uh, we're getting a good, strong, diverse economy to weather whatever lies ahead. I can tell you Colorado's recovery is one of the strongest in the nation. You and your opponents both want to repeal the state income tax, although you'd go about it differently. The income tax is the biggest source of revenue to the state government, $11 billion a year, give or take right now. Why do you want to repeal that tax? And how do you replace that amount of revenue? So there's a big difference here between my opponent's plan and my plan, first of all. What I'm talking about, revenue neutral. So it means that I'm not talking about making government smaller or making government bigger. I'm just talking about how we can get the revenue we need to function, uh, support our schools, support our prisons, support law enforcement. Uh, she in she very much wants to make government smaller, but She wants to, write eliminate the income tax, which would reduce the, the state general funds by about 40%. And that would mean slashing school budgets, increased class size, cutting teacher pay, closing down prisons, all of the things that are supported out of the general fund, uh, which would come out of her tax plan. I'm talking about simply making sure that we can encourage productivity and growth through a tax code that works for Colorado that's fair and more pro-growth. So what is the alternative source of income, massive income? You know, I would say the big sort of audacious idea that I like to talk about, but it'll take a lot of work to get from here to there. And obviously, this will be a matter for the people of Colorado to vote on, to be clear. Anything in this realm, as you know, is on the ballot. Um, but I, I would could look at replacing income tax, which I consider income something positive. We want to encourage people to make it. We shouldn't penalize it with taxing something that's negative, like pollution, emissions, and carbon. So uh, if we can move to a revenue neutral, not making government bigger, 
not making government smaller, just funding uh, what we need in a way that supports the growth of businesses, supports individuals earning income, and instead penalizes negative externalities, as the term an economist would use, things that we all agree uh, are negative, like pollution and carbon emissions. I think that would be a better way to go for our state, and it's a discussion that I'm happy to be part of. And a massive change that you want to bring about in a second four-year term. Do I have the timeline correct? This, yeah. Well, again, I, I want to be clear that the voters have their say in what I'm talking about because this would be uh, a fiscal matter for the voters of our state if we can successfully put together the numbers, make it work. In the meantime, the income tax has gone down twice during my time as governor. I'm hopeful we can deliver additional cuts to the income tax. I don't see any realistic plan. My opponent talks about eliminating it without replacing it with anything. That would absolutely completely undermine funding for our schools, our prisons, our roads. Colorado would become a less safe place, a more dangerous place, uh, and a place where our schools would rank last in the country if her plan went through. She says that it would become a more business-friendly place and that that would be a boost in terms of you revenue know what? to the Businesses state. Businesses need to hire people, and we need good schools to prepare people for success. Uh, when, when businesses look at coming to Colorado, they're always asking the tough questions about our schools and, and what families can expect. And, you know, if you're cutting teacher pay by 40%, increasing class size and making Colorado less safe by defunding state patrol and defunding our prisons, you're not going to have any businesses coming here, uh, even if the tax rate's zero. Your opponent says that uh, during your term, there have been 4,000 hires in state government and that she thinks that, uh, frankly, the state payrolls are bloated. Do you think that's true? Well, I hope she can identify some areas to cut because transportation I, is one of them. She thinks that well, CDOT just has too many people. So when you look at where the people are, and, and particularly at, at an agency like CDOT, many of them are here because they're federally funded through the American Rescue Act for two years or for three years, and then those positions go away. So, you know, to make sure that we administer those funds, every state has hired people to, to make sure that we're able to use those funds. So again, if there's particular job descriptions and people, I'm not somebody who cares about pride of authorship. If she can tell me who's doing something that doesn't need to be done, I would be thrilled to write that out of the budget and save that money and instead send it to our classrooms or to keep Colorado safe by funding our police. Speaking of the state income tax, uh, I want to ask you about Prop 121, which would cut it from 4.55% to 4.40. Are you for or against 121? Uh, you know, again, I, I really ran for governor to get rid of our income tax, cut our income tax. Uh, we've done it twice. This will be the third time. I'll be voting for it. All right. On the same subject, the highest earners in Colorado would see fewer deductions of a different ballot measure, Prop FF passes. Uh, the additional state revenue would pay for universal free school lunches. Does that have your support, Governor? I made, made up my mind on that one, Ryan. I, I don't have an objection to the funding mechanism, but at the same time, I sort of asked myself if we had this, I think it's about $100 million, w would it be better just to be able to pay teachers better, reduce class size, or is the best use of it lunches for upper middle income families. I mean, it's up to the people of Colorado. It doesn't affect the state finances one way or the other because it's effectively revenue neutral with the mechanism. So I'll look forward to, you know, reviewing that in my blue book like everybody else and, and making my decision. You have invoked climate change, and I'd like to explore it further with you. During a recent debate in Pueblo, there was a moment that puzzled me. Um, you boasted that you drove a combustion engine car. So yeah, I drive and I, an I, uh, combustion engine, and I'm proud to. I also have a Chevy Express uh, conversion van with 120,000 miles can, on it. Not everybody can afford a, a Tesla like my opponent. Well, you can. Um, yeah, but I drive an internal <laughs> combustion engine. I think that's all you need to know well, about it. Why don't you walk here, right? the talk Look, then, Jared? It.
It was in such stark contrast to your administration's drumbeat around electric car adoption. Were you undermining your own beliefs to appeal to certain voters with that? I believe in freedom. Uh, You know, and you probably see my ads. What do you get with me? Lower taxes, more freedom. Very simple. Drive what you want to drive. Do I want to make sure we have the infrastructure so people can choose electric vehicles? Absolutely. We've increased the availability of different models of electric vehicles on the market. I want to empower people to make choices, right? I choose a Ford Escape. Will my next car be electric? Perhaps it will when I shop for one in a few years. But, you know, I'm only about six years into this car. It has a few more years to go. Uh, and I, I'm willing to, like every consumer, make those trade-offs. So I'm all about empowering people to make the best choices for them. There should be no shame or there should be no pride. Uh, you can make the best decisions for you. I want to increase the availability of those decisions. So if you want to be able to choose electric, you know that you can have the convenience of low-cost charging available across the state. But I think people concerned about climate change look to you for leadership and think, why is this guy celebrating the combustion engine? Well, I, you know, celebrating is a heavy word. I'm, I'm not ashamed uh, and I'm not bragging. I, it's what I drive. I mean, people, you know, transparency, people can ask. My prior Ford Escape was a hybrid Ford Escape. And I totaled it about eight years ago. I had that one for about eight or nine years. And then unfortunately, they discontinued the hybrid model. So I really like the Ford Escape. So I like the hybrid. If they had one, my current car would be a Ford Escape hybrid, but then they discontinue that. So now I drive the regular Ford Escape. I'm about increasing choices for Colorado. That's what they get with me. More freedom, lower taxes. Uh, And of course, part of empowering people to choose electric cars if they want them is making sure that they have low-cost access to charging, including on our corridors, our highways, our scenic byways, uh, making it easier to charge at work. Uh, We've now up purchases of EVs for the state fleet to about a third of our new vehicles that we bought are electric. That saves taxpayers money. We've also empowered school districts to use electric school buses, which can reduce their operating costs, their diesel fuel costs, which frees more money up for the classroom to pay teachers better and reduce class size. Those are the kind of smart investments that I'm happy to support. I want to talk a bit about ozone, which can cause lung damage, make asthma worse, and cars are a big contributor. The EPA now wants to move Colorado from a serious rating to a severe one. And that would have two major effects. Drivers would have to buy a cleaner and more expensive blend of gasoline. It would also put new permitting requirements on industrial sources. When you and I talked a few months ago, you said that the change by the EPA was fine with you. You've since changed that position, asking the EPA to reconsider particularly the mandate on the more expensive reformulated gasoline. Now you say you will pursue all legal strategies to avoid that requirement. Why the change? Well, first of all, I am not only fine, but frankly, uh, supportive of being able to have increased authority over uh, reducing industrial emissions and some of the pollution. So there's been no issue we've raised with that. And that's what you told me some months ago, yeah. is the idea that uh, polluters would be cracked down upon, essentially. It, we're, and, and, and absolutely, because we, we all value cleaner air in our state. We want to make sure that we can reduce asthma, that, that people are healthy, and, and it's a really important priority for us, and we have made uh, significant investments in cleaner air. But presumably, reformulated gasoline is also about people's health. So, you know, that's when you look at the costs and the benefits, it just doesn't add up. And as I said, I'm a data-driven guy. Uh, when you look at the cost to Coloradans, because it would likely, and we're going to do everything we can to stop it, and I think we will, but if they increase gas prices by, whether you know, there's different estimates. It the EPA says $0.03 three cents. Cents a gallon, $0.30 cents a gallon, maybe let's call it $0.10 cents a gallon, whatever it is, is probably somewhere between $0.08 cents a gallon. 
if you look at the value of that money, we could do so much more to clean our air than the marginal at best improvements from reformulated gas. For instance, you could put that money into supporting and making it even more affordable for Coloradans to drive electric vehicles and e-bikes. Two programs, we have an e-bike program for people who want to commute with e-bikes. And of course, we'd love to be able to reduce the price even further of electric vehicles for those who choose them. So is that your message to the EPA? Hold off on this, we'll invest it there? There's a negotiation piece and there's a legal piece, Ryan. Um, and I you know, can probably speak more to the negotiation piece. We hold our cards pretty close to for fighting for our legal prerogative here in our state to make sure that Coloradans aren't forced to pay more for gas. On the negotiation side, absolutely, yes. We can show what would the dollarization be and how could we get not just as clean air as if the reformulation went for it, but significantly cleaner air with the same resources that we're excited to look at through a clean air package, through making sure that we move forward as a state and we're forward looking. Uh, We want to do more with less. We don't want to do less with more. Um, And we want to make sure we maximize the improvements to our air, minimize costs to Colorado consumers. We do know that transportation is a massive contributor to greenhouse gases. And it's also one of the trickiest to reduce. You know, if you convert a coal plant to some sort of different power source, that's a big change in one fell swoop. But transportation is thousands and millions of vehicles, right? Little little plants all around. How do you make a real dent in that uh, and the behavior driving it? So we've talked about electric cars. Do you have any other ideas about how you transform a transportation system, perhaps how you invest in transit to make the kinds of dents in those greenhouse gas contributions that you want to do? It ties back into our discussion around housing. Housing is a climate issue. Housing is a pollution issue. People, generally speaking, don't want to have a 45-minute commute to work for the heck of it. They do it because it's where they can afford to live. If people can afford to live closer to where their jobs are, less cars on the road, less traffic, cleaner air. Of course, moving towards supporting uh, the choice that people make to drive electric vehicles, empowering people to make that choice, reducing costs. Of course, more transit. We made transit free in Colorado for the month of August. Not just RTD, but many transit agencies across the state. We're parsing that data, but I mean, the initial data shows increased ridership, but we're really looking at analyzing that and, and seeing whether that's something we can continue during ozone season in the future. And of course, making sure there's new transit opportunities like Front Range Rail, and we created that Front Range Rail Commission, and we're working hard on delivering a product that can get people where they want to go faster and less expensive than if they drive on their own. Where would the money come from for Front Range Rail? I mean, are you talking about the corridor from Fort Collins down to Pueblo? So we work with the legislature to create a special district for that. So if there is a proposal that has value for people, it would go to the voters who live in that district to approve it or deny it. Let's talk about COVID. President Joe Biden recently said the pandemic is over. Do you agree? Uh, You know, we ended all of our health-related pandemic requirements about a year before. You know, we encourage individual responsibility in our state. We wanted to arm people with the tools they needed. We made we were one of the leaders in vaccinations, made it available, free masks for teachers. We got schools back early uh, and teachers who wanted to had free medical grade masks from the state, testing available at large testing sites across the state. So we really got through this in a thoughtful way. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad the president said that. Um, again, I, I think we've we've kind of have been there in Colorado for some time. Your opponent mentions that you are still retaining emergency powers under some of the pandemic 
realities. Is that true? Yeah, is it it's time one of those to give things that's kind of more political than real. So there's an emergency declaration, just as there often are for fires, for years after for funding resources. The only there is a uh, declaration around the pandemic that allows us to draw increased Medicaid funding from the federal government. So I don't think she really means she would cut that off if she became governor, because Colorado would lose tens of millions of dollars. But um, there are no restrictions on anything, and haven't been for a long time around, you know, requirements or get-togethers or anything like that. It's simply uh, for funding purposes that we we keep this open. And of course, we will do what we need to to pull down more federal resources for Colorado, whether it's for fire recovery or whether it's for pandemic recovery. Let me link this topic to one we spoke of earlier. You know, critics of COVID lockdowns draw a line between those restrictions early on and today's inflation. They argue that had businesses not been forced to shut down or to scale down, that huge federal stimulus wouldn't have been necessary and that inflation wouldn't be as high. How do you respond to that argument? You know, I, I, it's kind of, I, I, I used to think about these things more when I was a member of Congress at the national level. There's a lot of drivers of inflation, right? Monetary policy is one of them. Uh, federal deficit spending is one of them. And I would add that, as you know, in the state of Colorado, we have a balanced budget requirement. We do not allow deficit spending. In fact, we did the opposite. We have record surpluses. That's why not only did everybody get $750 back, but we have record reserves. But, but yes, much of the money Congress spent was deficit spending, monetary policy. The third issue is the global instability, the war in Ukraine, the interruptions of the global supply chain. Those are all inflationary. Uh, across the world, you see inflation increasing. We've centered our agenda in Colorado. I don't think any governor candidate can come and say, I'm going to fix global inflation. That's not within the authority of a state or governor. What we can do is say, we're going to do everything we can to cut costs and reduce fees and reduce taxes. And that's exactly what we've done. Delivered 100 ways to save people money. Social security income, no longer subject to state income tax. Enormous property tax cuts. Items like diapers, no longer subject to the sales tax starting in January. We now have at our community colleges to enter healthcare fields. We talked earlier about hard to fill fields. A lot of people in healthcare burnt out during the pandemic. It is now free to become a certified nursing assistant, an EMT, a phlebotomist. These certificate programs are now entirely free at our community colleges. When I announced at a community college of Aurora a few weeks ago, I met one young man training to be an EMT. He said, with the money you saved me, I was able to fix my car to be able to get to class. While the Dobbs decision on abortion at the Supreme Court left the question to states, Republicans, including U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, are increasingly focused on a federal ban. Would you like to see federal protections for abortion, uh, given that reality, or leave it to the states? Well, I, I uh, big difference here, again, between my opponent and I. My opponent celebrated the end of Roe versus Wade and now wants to have additional criminal charges to women and doctors in Colorado. I uh, was very saddened, like many people, by the repeal of Roe versus Wade. It's something that, for me, you know, uh, it, it, growing up, I was born in 1975, we, I grew up in the era of Roe versus Wade. So my mother tells me stories about the pre-Roe days with some of her college sorority friends and what they had to do and the challenges they faced, including increased health risks and dangers. I grew up thinking that protection would always be there. It's now gone. That makes the race for governor more real uh, for people and um, in Colorado. There are states bordering Colorado where literally, even today, women, nurses, doctors are facing criminal charges for the reproductive health decisions that they make. I think that's wrong. Government should not have a place at that table. It should be between a woman and her doctor. What you've answered there, 
uh, is with the idea that Colorado gets to be self-determining. But no, if, not something I celebrated, not something I, I would have much rather we had the national protection of Roe versus Wade. I mean, this is not something I was ever supporting. Unfortunately, people now have to turn to their governor to protect our freedom. I wish that wasn't the case. Without the protection of Roe versus Wade, would you like to see federal protection for abortions congressionally? Uh, well, yeah, I, I would. I'm not. A, I'm not running for Congress, to be clear, Ryan. I used to do that. I would support the codification of Roe versus Wade, just as we did here in the state of Colorado. Federally, uh, I support freedom. I support choice, and I think that making sure that women don't have to face criminal charges when they're dealt with these very difficult decisions is something that should be a given in this day and age in our country. Before we go, give me a recent example of something you've changed your mind about. It's not so much changing my mind as reacting to new data. So, I I mean, I think my leadership during COVID was an example of that. Uh, We always looked to the latest data. I would stay up late at night pouring over reports. Uh, That's the same approach I'm going to take to public safety. Um, Again, if there's things in prior bills that need to be changed, we're going to get them changed. But show me what works in other states, uh, what doesn't work in other states so we can change it here, and what's working in Colorado. Um, I think that's the best way to move our state forward. Rather than bring an ideological MAGA agenda to the state of Colorado and try to impose it on them, let's try to learn from real-world data to make our lives better in this amazing state that we call home. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Democratic Governor Jared Polis is seeking a second term. Listen to my conversation with Republican Heidi Ganahl at CPR.org, where we've also posted full transcripts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As days get shorter and nights get cooler, thousands of large, hairy spiders march across the eastern plains, especially near La Junta. It's been called a tarantula migration, but only males go on the move. They spend their first several years close to the home burrow. When they're ready to mate, they develop very long legs to walk half a mile a day in search of females. When he finds a female's burrow, the male slaps the ground. It's a gamble. If she's not receptive, the much larger female tarantula could eat him. Even if the mating is successful, the male is pretty much done for. Each one dies after it fulfills its reproductive mission. While his lifespan is limited to seven or eight years, the female tarantula lives up to 20. Maybe you fear spiders, but remember, a tarantula is much more afraid of you and its venom results only in mild effects. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. In a new video game, there's a character modeled after a Denver model. Jasmine Colgan is also an activist who shares her journey with vitiligo. The autoimmune condition lightens her skin. She has described herself as spotted. And in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, there's no mistaking it. The character Nova is the incandescent Colgan. Back in June, we talked about how a diagnosis became a gift for Colgan. Jasmine, do you remember your first spot? I do. You do? Yeah, it was a little guy on my leg, and then it kind of started to expand and morph and become its own thing around my body. Did you know what it was at first? No, I didn't. Honestly, I I kind of brushed it off and then went to a dermatologist who confirmed it was vitiligo. And then I actually started to go through the process of trying to repigment and wanting to change myself into someone I'm not meant to be anymore. So like vitiligo has been just like the most bizarre but beautiful blessing in disguise. 
I gather there are people who want repigmentation so that their skin looks more consistent. Correct. You did not have that desire? I did it for a certain couple of years, I think, you know, like when I was first taking my first initial steps, repigment is to like develop more skin pigment or melanin that, you know, like turns back into like the original color from the depigmentation. And I'll just say you're biracial. Yes. And your skin naturally was darker. Yes. And became lighter as a result, also naturally, (laughs) of vitiligo. Yeah. And so I, I suppose... You would meet healthcare workers who said, hey, we have ways of redarkening that skin. Actually, the only treatment option that is a, like FDA approved is a topical cream that will depigment your skin. So it'll turn you white, but it won't repigment your skin. So um, there are other treatments that so are... Just to be clear, that treatment would have made you more white. Yes. So the idea there wasn't to make the white skin darker. It was to make the existing dark skin lighter. Yes which is interesting. And it's kind of like neocolonialism in a sense, because historically there was like bleaching creams for people of color, black people in particular, to somewhat be passing. Right. This this was for folks not even with vitiligo, Correct. just to lighten their skin yeah. and increase their standing in a racist society. Yeah. You've done modeling for Crocs, Verizon, Starbucks, an edibles company called Wana. The other day, I saw a male model with vitiligo doing a spread, I think, for Nike. Oh, cool. On Facebook. Do you remember the first time you saw someone else, like maybe in mainstream media, with vitiligo? Yeah, I did. Uh, Well, I mean, most people don't realize Michael Jackson has vitiligo or had vitiligo. Um, Although he might be the most famous vitiligan. Yeah. I mean, now there's Chantel Winnie, who's, you know, like a fashion model who from Canada. She was in America's Next Top Model, and now she's kind of like a face for vitiligo in the fashion world. Here's actually a short clip of her speaking. As I got older, I, you know, kind of built the confidence to tell my mom that that's not something that I like. I don't enjoy putting on makeup to cover up my skin. It's not fun, you know. It's not something that I see my friends having to do, so I don't feel like I should have to do it either. I think that was really empowering when I was first developing vitiligo to see her as somebody who was really embracing herself. And she's had vitiligo since she was a kid. Mm. Having this person who, you know, like was able to create a positive light around a skin condition that most people shy away from or they'll order their groceries, for instance, online so that they don't have to go outside or they'll put their makeup on like for four hours before they even go outside. You become a slave to your skin. How is it to have both dark and light skin and be biracial? I think we kind of left off on this conversation in 2017, and I didn't know how to address it then. And then all of this like BLM movement started to happen. Uh And, you know, I've become part of the vitiligan race in a sense. You know, like I've really learned to help define the fact that, you know, like it's a skin condition. It's not a skin disease It can be considered a disease depending on how you look at it, how you perceive it. I hear you saying not necessarily to avoid treatment or the medical community, but to shift the thinking and not to see it purely through a pathological lens. Yeah. And that was a journey for you. Yeah. There's a variety of treatments that you're able to endure. It's your choice, you know, like it's your journey. However, just understand that some of these treatments may be invasive. And aside from a pathological 
perspective, it's also very artistic. You know, like you have these beautiful ways that your skin looks like clouds or sometimes I actually had one that looked like a skull or, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool. <laughs> or it's like cloud watching where you're going, yeah. what do I see in the sky today? <laughs> what message would you have for healthcare providers who see patients, uh, perhaps new patients with vitiligo? What would you impart to them? I would suggest just trying to be as compassionate as possible. Like, what if you were in the same shoes? Would you want to hear that you have a, a disease? Would you want to hear that, like, the skin that you're trying to accept and embrace is something that is an illness? You know, like, it's not terminal. It, it doesn't make you sickly. It doesn't make you ill. It actually makes you really unique. And to have, like, that confirmation from somebody who is studying this condition versus, like, Right away, let me tell you how I can treat you. Let me show you how mm. I can fix you. Those terms right there, let me tell you how I can fix you and treat you. Those are two different things that really are negative And you don't think about it because you're coming from a textbook standpoint versus a humane standpoint. Understanding like here are your options. Options yes. is the word. Yeah, I options. think so. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Denver model and artist Jasmine Abena Colgan, founder of the nonprofit Tough Skin. She's the inspiration for the character Nova in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. We spoke in June. And that is Colorado Matters, with thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher, Andrew Kenny, Carl Bielek, and Pete Kramer. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.